Well, let's turn to Matthew 24. We're making um, progress slowly through Matthew. We hope to finish the uh, gospel um, in January, at the end of January. And uh, our plan now is to begin a study in the book of Revelation in February. And uh, this particular chapter that we'll be looking at this morning is good preparation for uh, a study on that portion of the predictive uh, New Testament. This uh, is a predictive discourse here in Matthew 24. We've seen five of these discourses so far in the gospel. The uh, first is the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. The second in chapter 10, the preparation of the disciples before the Lord sent them on their missionary uh, junket. Chapter 13, you have the parables of the kingdom. In chapter 18, the discourse on greatness within the kingdom. And now in chapter 24, we come to a prophetic section of the New Testament where Jesus predicts for us the course of our age and the age to come. There's an ancient Chinese proverb that says, it is very difficult to prophesy, especially with respect to the future. And... Uh, I think we all can identify. We all have 20-20 hindsight, but uh, our foresight is not too good. That's why it's so good to read a passage like this and know that the Lord knows what's going on. He, uh, he not only shapes and forms history, he knows it. it's going someplace. There is some purpose to history, and more specifically, there's, there's some purpose to our life. Our destiny is fixed, and God has a, a purpose for us within history. And that, for me, is a very comforting thing. Uh, the Lord gives us, along the way, landmarks by which we can orient uh, our lives with respect to history. And that's what we have here in chapter 24 of Matthew. Now, prophecy <clears throat> is very difficult to interpret. Uh, the reason being, prophecy is not history written beforehand. I think, uh, for many people, that's their concept of prediction. God, since he knows the future, describes history for us in all of its details. And uh, we can simply read the accounts, the predictive portions of the Old and New Testament, and we can understand in detail everything that's going to happen between now and the end of, of the age. But that simply is not true. Too many elements are, um, are missing for this to be history before the fact. Let me illustrate um, in a sort of corny way. Last night, I was watching the uh, BSU-ISU game, and um, I missed the first part of it because I was busy doing things around the house. Turned it on, uh, caught uh, the first couple of minutes of action, then got busy doing something else. I had to answer a telephone call. Came back, caught a couple of plays. Um, something else distracted me, got busy doing things around the house. Then, uh, just as I sat down, uh, BSU came up uh, to the line of scrimmage. Uh, the ball was snapped, and my screen went blank. And uh, I sat there for a minute and looked at the white screen. I thought, this is a little dumb. So I got up, and I turned it off, and I had some other things to do around the house. And every once in a while, I'd go back and check on the action in the game and uh, finally uh, went to bed. Now, to make the story better, I would have checked uh, at the very end to see what the score was. I didn't find out until this morning. But, uh, as I say, it would have made the illustration a little bit better if I had checked right at the end, and uh, I saw that BSU won the game. And uh, then I had gone to bed. Now, if I had tried to describe that game to you, at least the game that I saw, it would be very fragmented. 
I would have missed most of the game. I really only saw about a dozen plays through the evening. All I, all I saw was some, I saw some key plays, and I saw the end of the game, and I realized who won the game, but that's about all. Now, that's what you have in prophecy. It's not history beforehand. It is snapshots of events, benchmarks that orient us, that give us some idea of what's happening, that assure us that God is in control of history. The world is rot, not running amok. God's not up uh, in heaven pacing the floor, wringing his hands, gnashing his teeth, uh, concerned and worried about the destiny of the world. He knows exactly where the world is going. Everything is under control, and we know the outcome. Now, that's what prophecy does for us. Uh, I think prophecy is best understood in retrospect. It's as we go through the events which are predicted, or we have gone through them and look back upon these events that we understand uh, what what these predictions mean. Uh, For example, in the book of Daniel, you have reference to what is translated in our Bible, the abomination of uh, desolation, the shikuts, Shomam, the Hebrews called it, and that would confuse anyone, but uh, basically just means something that uh, desecrates, some horrible thing that causes desecration, an abominable thing. Now, if you had read Daniel's prophecy in the 6th century, you would have no idea what he was talking about. You would, you would simply know that at some point in the future, the temple would be desecrated in some way. Now, from our, our standpoint in history, we can look back and we know that in the second century before Christ, a, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, one of the Seleucid emperors, desecrated the temple by offering a sow on the altar. Now, we know. We have the details. We have history. But uh, from Daniel's standpoint, one would not know what Daniel was talking about. Now, that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. From our vantage point in history, looking forward, we cannot be sure of all the events. We simply have the broad outlines. And therefore, we ought to be humble and tentative in our interpretation of Scripture. There are many things about which we cannot be certain. We cannot be dogmatic. Now, I say that because I think there is a lot of sinful division in the body of Christ over elements of prophecy that that we're simply not sure of. And we need, in our approach to all of these prophetic uh, systems, to uh, check them with Scripture, be sure they coincide with the Word, realize that the opinions of man are not the same thing as the clear statements of of Scripture, and hold many of our views, which are not clearly spelled out in Scripture, as tentative. We have to be somewhat agnostic if you understand the meaning of that term. We don't know everything. Scripture tells us we don't. And uh, therefore, we should not divide the body of Christ over prophetic uh, issues that are indeterminate, things that we're uncertain of. Secondly, we need to remember that our authority is Scripture, not any interpreter. And uh, when anyone speaks out on a prophetic passage of Scripture, let's go back to the Word and see if they are true to Scripture. Let's determine what Scripture says, what's clear, what's specific. And what is simply opinion? And root ourselves in the Word. That's what orients us, you see, in, in all, of, all of life. Now let's begin reading with verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24. <clears throat> and Jesus came out of the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. 
And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which shall not be torn down. If you recall from last week, the Lord walked out of the temple area with the statement in chapter 23, verse 38, ringing in their ears. Your house has left you desolate. He said, it's empty. In other words, God has abandoned his, his house. Israel is no longer a, th- a theocracy, a God-ruled nation. God abandoned his temple. We know because of the abuses in the temple, people were coming to the temple and to the, the priests and the clergy there looking for help. This was a, a time when people were desperate and hurting, and they were receiving no help there. They were being exploited, used, but they weren't being helped. And so after a long period of time, uh, through the ministry of the prophets before and through the Lord's ministry, now the Lord was leaving his temple. It's much like the situation in Ezekiel's time. Ezekiel, in a vision, saw the Shekinah, the cloud that symbolized the presence of God in the temple, lift and, and leave the temple area and go off to the top of the Mount of Olives and then be taken up into the air. It was a symbolic vision designed to teach Israel that God had abandoned his house. It was empty. And uh, this was Jesus' last words to the nation. Your house is left to you desolate, he said. And then he and his disciples began to walk through the temple. And I think uh, the disciples must have been uh, electrified by that statement. They, They didn't understand. And from the other Gospels, we know that uh, they were very impressed by this big structure, this beautiful structure that Herod had made. And they were pointing out to Jesus all the fine points of the temple as though to to convey the idea, "Are, are you sure you know what you're talking about? This beautiful building, how could God abandon his temple? It's the same sort of thing that was happening in Jeremiah's day. God would never abandon his temple. This is where God dwells. And these disciples, most of whom were country folk, uh, seldom in the big city were probably overly impressed by this beautiful structure. And we know it was magnificent. The little temple that the exiles had built had been elaborated and enlarged by Herod the Great until it was one of the architectural marvels of the day. It was a beautiful structure. Just, archaeologists are just now finding some of the stones from that temple, and they find these great uh, marble uh, Slabs, some 20 and 40 feet long that weigh over 100 tons that were used in the construction of this temple complex. The rabbis and Josephus and others comment on the beauty of the building. It was an extraordinary structure. And the disciples couldn't believe that this temple would be abandoned. So the Lord reinforces his teaching with these words in verse 2. I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. And this must have stunned the apostles. This building torn down. The uh, figure, the expression, not one stone left upon another is an idiom for total destruction. They couldn't believe it. But, of course, we know from our vantage point in history, that's precisely what happened. Some 40 years later, 70 A.D., Titus and four Roman legions surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and from April 70 A.D. until August, they besieged the city. Finally, the city fell. The Romans broke it through the walls into the temple area, flattened the city, destroyed the temple, built a pagan worship site on the location of the uh, temple, of the, uh, the uh, altar, 
in the temple. And what Jesus predicted was fulfilled to the letter. Josephus says that there were over two million Jews in Jerusalem at that time. They had run into the temple area, into Jerusalem, to find sanctuary. A million one hundred thousand died in the siege. They either starved or were slaughtered when the Romans broke into the city. And 97,000 were taken captive. It was a period of incredible suffering. It's awful. But Jesus said it was coming. I say to you, he says, not one stone will be left standing upon another. The disciples were just awestruck. They didn't know what to do. And so apparently there was a long period of silence as Jesus and the disciples made their way through the temple and then down through the valley of the Kidron and up the other side as they apparently made their way back to Bethany where uh, they, were, they were staying. And uh, the slopes of, of the Mount of Olives, uh, the slope is very steep and evidently they were winded and they sat down on the side of the Mount of Olives to rest for a moment, and as they looked across the Kidron Valley, they could see the sun shining on the gold that was that overlaid these massive walls and the minarets and the towers that uh, graced the structure, and they could not believe their ears. And so we know from the other gospel accounts from Mark that uh, the disciples got together and they appointed four men to go to Jesus and ask for a, an explanation of his statement. James and John and Andrew and Peter. And they made their way down the hill where the Lord was sitting. And they raised the question that Matthew gives us in verse 3. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples, these four disciples, came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, evidently, the disciples were, were confused. An event of this magnitude, the destruction of the temple, they felt, must signify the end of the age. And it seems apparent to me from the question they raised that they thought that the coming of Christ would coincide with the destruction of the temple. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? In other words, is this destruction the sign of your appearing? Now, they knew from the Old Testament that the time of Messiah's coming would be preceded by a time of trouble. And so they just naturally realized, naturally uh, uh, concluded that this was the end of the age, the present age. The Jews thought in terms of two ages. There was the present age, which is this age, and the age to come, which is the golden age of Messiah. And the present age would be concluded by a period of trouble, and then Messiah would come. And so they just put two and two together and said, Aha, this is it. The temple will be destroyed, and then you'll come. That's it, right? The Lord said, No. <laughs> in effect, no, you're wrong. In the first 14 verses of Matthew 24 are corrective. They're designed to teach the apostles that there will be a period of time characterized by trouble that will consummate in his coming again. Now what follows in these verses is a series of what I call unsigns. <laughs> these are not the signs of Jesus' coming. These are unsigns. These are things that are not signs. These are things which do not presage his coming. Now let's... Let's read them. Verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Don't be fooled. 
For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nations and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. It's an interesting allusion. He says uh, the age in which we live is much like uh, the process of giving birth to a child. There are a series of contractions which culminate in the birth of the child, and the contractions increase in intensity and and frequency until the child is born. And, and he describes the present age in that way. It's like giving birth to a child. There will be a series of great contractions, worldwide cataclysms, which will culminate in the coming of the age. But he says, don't, when you see these events happening singly, that, that the event in itself is not necessarily a sign of my coming. It's simply the beginning of birth pangs. Then he says in verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation. And we know from Luke that he does, he's not speaking in sequence. He's not saying these things will happen and then they will deliver you up to tribulation. But rather throughout the course of this age, you will suffer tribulation. They will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many, and because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, it is he who shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. Now what the Lord is doing in these verses, verses 3 through 14, is describing for us the character of the age. He wants us to be knowledgeable about the age that will intervene between his first and second comings. That's the period of time that, he, that he's describing here. The end, which he mentions in verse 14, will be defined later as his second coming, described in the verses that follow. And what he does for us is reveal the character of the times in which we live. We need to keep that in mind as we look at these verses. He is talking about our era, our time of life, our lifetime, that of the apostles and those who will live throughout the church age until the Lord Jesus comes back. And he describes the character of these times in this way. He says in verse 5, many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and will mislead many. In other words, there will be many false Christs, there will be many antichrists. We know from history that uh, almost immediately after Jesus said these words and after his crucifixion and ascension, false Christ began to arise. John, in his little epistle, talks about the spirit of Antichrist. He, uh, when he uses the term anti, he's thinking uh, not of those who are against Christ, the Greek preposition anti can have two meanings. It can either be against or it can be in place of, substitute. And it seems that John has the latter idea in mind. There will be men who arise who seem to be just like Christ. They're substitute Christs. And they'll look good. They'll be compassionate. They'll be concerned about 
people. They'll be loving. Jesus talks, or John in his little epistle, talks about these antichrists. But uh, he says they're liars. Who is a liar, he says, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. There's only one Christ in history, and that's Jesus. And anyone else is a liar. But uh, almost immediately, these men began to emerge and to have an impact upon their times. And we see it going on today. There are many, many Christian cults, Christian in quotes, Christian in the sense that they, they go by the name of Christ, and they look good, and they seem to be concerned about people, but they deny that Jesus is the Christ. And so Jesus says, don't, don't listen to them. Don't, don't be deceived by them. But there will be many of them. We'll be flooded by propaganda, people telling us that they are the Christ, or that they have a new interpretation of the Christ, or they saw a vision that reveals that Jesus is not the Christ. Or that we have misunderstood what the apostles say about Jesus. So let's be realistic about life. We can expect to see deceivers abroad. Many, he says, will come in my name. And secondly, in verse 6, he says, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of war. War and cold war. Real war and approaching war. That will, that will occur during the course of this age. The so-called peace of Rome that prevailed when Jesus wrote these words soon broke down and Rome fell and war has raged on unabated for 2,000 years. World War I, the war to end all wars, did not bring an end to war. The conference at The Hague, the League of Nations, the United Nations which was established to discover the root causes of war and eradicate them, has never come to terms with war. It's raged on to our time. So Jesus says, don't, don't be surprised if we live in times of turmoil when, uh, when war and conflict seems to be unstoppable. And third, in verse 7, Verse 7 is actually a further explanation of verse 6. Nation will rise against nations and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famine and earthquake. In other words, there will be natural disaster. Now, he's not saying that, that uh, just before his coming there will be a, a unique outbreak of natural disasters. There will be more earthquakes or more famines. He's simply saying throughout the course of this age, famine and an earthquake will take human life. And you have to remember in Jesus' day when they had no relief organizations that, that these natural disasters were far more horrific than they are now. Homes were shaken apart because they weren't uh, well built and whole families would be wiped out and, and uh, plague would rage through communities because they had no way to stop it. These things were awful. You see what Jesus is doing? He simply just, he, he wants to, us to be realistic about life. See, this is what will happen. This is the way the world will be. There will be war. There will be destruction. There will be violence. There will be wickedness and evil. So don't be surprised. And then down in verse 9, he says, They'll deliver you up to tribulation and will kill you. And you'll be hated by all nations on account of my name. Speaking here to the disciples and all those who are the seed of the disciples, the church. 
And at that time, he says, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. People will turn away from the truth. They don't want to listen to God's word. You may be the only person in your office who no longer believes in extramarital sex. You may be the only person in your classroom who doesn't believe that man is the measure of all things. You may stand alone. My son Brian has a good friend who now is in a university in California who uh, was in a class where he was asked, uh, how many of you here are creationists, believe in creation, have a creationist view of of origins. And he stuck his hand up. And then he got this funny feeling and he looked around and, and he was in a huge class. It was a freshman class of about 300 people. And his was the only hand. And uh, that's, that's the world that we're called to live in. That's the way things are. Jesus says, let's be realistic. That's what we can expect. Many, he says, will apostatize, fall away, Betray one another, hate one another, will live in a hate-filled environment, and many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Because of their indifference to the truth, men will forget how to love. They simply won't know what love is and their love will grow cold. It's a very appropriate word, I think, to this me generation. Today, everything is this for me. And what matters is me and my self-realization and my self-actualization. I saw a poster the other day at, uh, at the courthouse that showed a man in a business suit standing on the uh, edge of the sea, and he was looking out over the ocean. And the caption underneath said, there comes a time to be recognized. And I thought, that's the world we're living in. What matters is me. It's time for me to be recognized. It's time for me to, to get what's coming to me. And uh, Jesus says, because of that philosophy of life, the world's going to grow cold. Marriages will begin to break up because what matters is me, not you. I'm not here to serve and, and care for you. And uh, parents and children will be divided. And the world will just get colder and colder and colder. And the Lord says, that's realism. Let's be realistic. That's what we can expect. You know, that's precisely what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3. And it would be good, I think, to turn to that passage just to refresh our mind. 2 Timothy 3. Paul says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, by biblical definition, the last days is not some far-off period. It's not the tribulation. It's the times in which we live. It's the times between the first and second comings of Christ. For example, in Hebrews 1, 1, the author of Hebrews says, God, who spoke through the prophets in various ways, has in these last days spoken unto us in a son. So he's talking about the days in which we live, the days between the first and second coming. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 describes Christians as those upon whom the end of the age have come. 
That was uh, 2,000 years ago, 1900 and some odd years ago. And Paul says, "This is we're living in the end of the age. These are the last days. Peter, in his sermon on the day of Pentecost, again, clearly identifies the period from Pentecost on is the last days. So Paul's not talking about some far-off epoch. He's talking about life now. And he says these will be dangerous, difficult times. The word that's translated difficult here is the word that's used in Matthew 9 to describe the, the maniac who came out of the tombs and accosted and assaulted Jesus and his disciples. These will be days that are dangerous to life and limb. Times will be tough. And then in verse 2, he tells us why these difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious, gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. If you take the first and last expression, you can see that he brackets all of this description by the thought they love themselves rather than God. They are lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And as John Stott puts it, man was created to love God first, his neighbor second, and himself last. And if we reverse that order and we love ourselves first and God last, it's always our neighbor who suffers. And that's why times are so tough. Paul says these people will be unloving. The term that he uses is the word that that, uh, C.S. Lewis describes as duck love. The kind of love you have for little little animals that are warm and cuddly. And he says they won't even love little ducks. That's how unloving they become. Jesus says that's the way the world is going to become. It will increasingly become cold and unloving and violent and evil. Times will be tough, he says. So don't be unrealistic about life. Well, in view of this description of our age, what sort of people should we be? As uh, Francis Schaeffer puts it, uh, since as we, as he believes, we're in the post-Christian era, how then shall we live? Well, the Lord tells us in Matthew 24. And here again, this is what I appreciate so much about Scripture. The Bible is utterly realistic about life. The Lord tells us exactly what we can expect and what we are to be in times like these. He says, first of all, in verse 4, see to it that no one misleads you. In other words, don't be fooled. Don't let anyone mislead you about the truth. Put your roots down in the Word. John, in his little epistle, John apparently was the first to have to meet this onslaught head on, and he wrote back to the church in in Asia Minor, and he says, uh, that which was from the beginning, which our eyes have seen, which we have touched, which we, we have looked upon, we've experienced, we've come to know, that we proclaim to you. People in John's day had a sort of progressive mentality. They were going on to use John's term. They, uh, they were listening to philosophers and theologians 
who were denying that Jesus was the Christ and who taught that we have new insights into the nature of Christ and, and books were being written that discredited the apostles and their writings. And John says, no, don't go on. As appealing as that may be to be intellectually with it and go with this, go back, he says, go back. Go back to the apostles, that which is from the beginning, from the historic origins, the Jesus that we apostles saw. Go back to him as he's revealed in the apostles. And if someone comes along with a book that purports to give you a new insight into the nature of Christ that's not found in Scripture, that Jesus was once a man who became God, and therefore you can become God, that's not apostolic. Don't believe it. Don't be deceived. And remember, they will look just like Christ. They will not. Their message is not, don't believe in Christ. Their message is, believe in Christ. But uh, believe in the Christ that we propose who is different from the apostolic Christ. So in a practical way, that means we need to be men and women of the word. We need to go back and put our roots down into scripture. We need to, to be disciplined in our Bible study. It's not enough merely to come to church on Sunday morning, gather with the body and hear the scriptures taught or listen to tapes or listen to to the Bible being taught on, on the radio. We need to be men and women of the word. We need to take time in a disciplined way to expose ourselves to what God has said and spend time in Bible study and prayer and go back to what the apostles say about the Lord Jesus. John White says it's like turning music on in your office. You walk into the office and you flip the switch and this beautiful music pervades the office. And he says, that's what Bible study does for you. You get up in the morning and you tune in. And through the day, you think God's thoughts after him. It teaches you to analyze things and to evaluate what the world says and uh, uh, to, to critique other philosophies and, and ideas about life. You can go back to the Word and think God's thoughts after him. So that's the first thing he wants us to remember. Don't be misled. Don't be fooled. But secondly, in verse 6, he says, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. Don't be afraid. For he says, these things must take place. They must because that's the way God has ordered the world. It's a part of his plan to bring redemption to the world, believe it or not. He's, he's simply taking his hands off the world and letting men run amok. He's not at a loss for an answer to the solutions of this world's problems. He knows exactly what needs to be done, but he's simply letting men have their way and reap the consequences. He could set the world right if he wanted to, but he's not trying to run the world right now. He's letting men and women have the freedom to live as they please and scorch the earth and destroy their lives and their families and everyone around them if that's the way they want to live. So he says it's inevitable, you see, because all of this is designed to bring man to the end of himself so he'll look up and find God. That's Paul's argument in Romans 1. It's a redemptive judgment. So he says don't be surprised, it's got to happen. Don't be alarmed when you see headlines in the paper that uh, seem to... Uh, indicate that war is imminent. And when our foreign policy is shaky, when the world seems to be coming apart at the seams, when there's no great power to control the Russians, he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. 
But a lot of people are. They're afraid of the communists. They're afraid of the trilateral commission. They're afraid of bar graphs on merchandise. They're afraid of credit cards. They're afraid of this computer at Brussels that allegedly is called the beast. And they're afraid. They're stockpiling food and stockpiling weapons. And they're just waiting for the communists to come crashing in on our shores. And they're just panicked. I don't know. Maybe it will happen. But I know what Jesus says. Don't be afraid. There's no panic in heaven. As Revelation describes God, his throne is on a sea of glass. In other words, there are no waves in heaven. Nobody's frantic up there. The Lord's not biting his fingernails and wringing his hands and thinking, well, what am I going to do with this awful world? How am I going to set things right? Everything is in control. He's at peace. Everything is happening exactly as God wants it to happen. Now, I'm not saying that we as Christians shouldn't be involved in the process of making the world a better place to live in, but let's be realistic about the world, and let's not be afraid. The verb tense that Jesus uses here implies continuing fear. He's not saying that our initial reaction is wrong if our initial reaction is fear. The initial reaction to fear is a normal response to threat to life and limb. The question is, where do we go from there? Do we stop and remind ourselves of God's sovereign control of all things? Do we remind ourselves of what Scripture so clearly says, that it's God who raises up one man and puts down another? It's God who puts men on the thrones, not men. We may elect them, but it's God who puts them there. And we can rest in his sovereign control of history. So don't be fooled, he says, and don't be afraid. And then third, in verse 13, the one who endures to the end, it is he who shall be saved. Now, he's not saying here that we have to, in, have to earn our salvation by endurance. We know from other parts of Scripture that cannot possibly be, be what he's saying. His point is that we prove our salvation by our endurance. And specifically, he means that we endure at a time when many will fall away. We won't. Many will betray one another. We won't. Many will hate one another. We won't. We won't hate each other. We'll love each other. When everyone treats their neighbor like junk, we won't. When the whole world is dividing up over political issues and they hate each other for their politics, we won't. And when many prophets arise and mislead many, we won't be misled. And when lawlessness increases and most people's love will grow cold, ours won't. We'll go on loving people. And we'll be content with what we have. When the whole world says you have to have something else, to make you happy, you'll say, no, all we need is God. And you won't be characterized, we won't be characterized by the restlessness that characterizes our world. We'll be at peace. And we'll be righteous. Oh, not stuffed shirts. Not coldly righteous. Not prudish. Not weird. But uh, loving and gracious and gentle 
and courageous and truthful and thoughtful and content. And we'll live that way right out in the middle of the world. There's no reason, absolutely no reason, why we Christians should ever run from the world. We have nothing to fear. We need to be right where Jesus was, right in the middle of the world and living out distinctive lives. Jesus was separate from sinners, morally, but not spatially. He was the friend of sinners. And I'll tell you what makes Christian living exciting. That's when you get out into the world, into the real world, and you live a godlike life right out in the middle of all this awfulness. That's when things get exciting. And that's the sort of power that God has, has given to us. But unfortunately, many of us do not avail ourselves of it. Peter Marshall says we are like deep-sea divers encased in gear designed to go fathoms deep, walking forth to pull plugs out of bathtubs. But it should not be. It should not be. We need to be in over our heads, out over our depth, counting on the Lord, living righteously in the world. And finally, in verse 14, he tells us, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. Some people I know think this is a... Uh, this is a sign of the coming of Christ that shortly before his coming, the gospel will be preached to all nations by the 144,000. But if you look at Revelation 7 and 14, and we'll do that when we study the book of Revelation, you'll see that not one statement in either Revelation 7 or 14 is said with reference to witness. Not once are the 144,000 said to be witnesses. Simply not there. They are something else, as we'll see when we get to Revelation. Now, this is not a unique message to Jews. The gospel of the kingdom is not some special message given to the Jewish nation during the tribulation. The gospel of the kingdom is the, is the gospel that we preach, that the apostles preach, that the kingdom is here, the king has come. You need the king. You need a Lord. It's the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus says that's the fourth priority we need to make proclamation of the truth that the king has come. I don't know about you, but the more time I spend talking to non-Christians, the more convinced I've become that most of them are really looking for a Lord. They're turned off on the institutional church because they don't see anything real and lasting there, and they're tired of our phoniness and our uptightness, but they are really looking for answers from real people, ordinary people, who have discovered how to live life as God intended us to live it, who can go through the world with poise and patience and love toward people who misuse them and abuse them, who know how to keep their families together, who are not me-centered, who are servants, compassionate, loving, gracious, godly people. They will listen. And we need to make proclamation. Now, this, I think, very clearly establishes our priorities in this age. Again, we're talking about the last times. The period of time from Jesus' words uttered on the slopes of the Mount of Olives down through history for 2,000 years into our time and on until the Lord comes. And he describes for us very accurately the character of those days. He says, times will be tough. Many will defect 
turn aside from the truth. And there will be lawlessness and coldness and ugliness. And it's going to be a hard world to live in. What should we do? Do not be deceived, he says. Don't be fooled. Don't be afraid. Live godly, righteous lives out in the midst of the world and make proclamation of the truth. And those are the priorities. Whatever else you do, he says, do those. If you're not doing those, then we're not obedient to his mandate for this age. Nothing wrong with being involved in recreational things of various types. There's nothing wrong with being involved in making a business go and providing for your family. Nothing wrong with being involved in a number of activities, but they're all secondary. What really matters, he says, the weapons, the mighty weapons that we have in this world are personal righteousness and proclamation of the word of God. And if we're going to be God's men and women, we need to keep the priorities straight. Orville Stiles reminded me a couple of weeks ago of a conversation which Doug, uh, Doug Coe had with Mark Hatfield. Years ago, when Mark Hatfield was running for the governor of Oregon, Doug Coe led Mark Hatfield to Christ, and at that time he was working with the navigators in the state of Oregon. Hatfield, he was, he was a teacher at Willamette, and he decided to run for governor of Oregon. <clears throat> and he was really uptight because things weren't going well. He was stewing and fretting. He had this immense ambition to be governor of the state of Oregon. And they were driving along the street one day, and Doug was, had picked him up at his house and was taking him down to his office on the Willamette campus. And Mark Hatfield was describing his feelings, and Doug pulled over to the side of the road, and he looked him in the eye, and he said, Mark, tell me, do you want to be governor of Oregon, or do you want to be a man of God? And Hatfield says that was a turning point in his life. He realized at that minute what the real priorities were in this life. And that's the question we need to ask ourselves. What do we want to be in life? Do I want to be important, successful, known, recognized, loved, appreciated? Or do I want to be God's man and God's woman? Paul says, redeem the time because the days are short. And as I've said before, we often read that passage as though he said, redeem the time, excuse me, because the days are evil. We often read that passage as though he said, redeem the time because the days are short. But he didn't say that. He said, redeem the time because the days are evil. Evil days are days of opportunity. And we need to buy them up. By not being deceived, by being unafraid, by making proclamation, and by living godly, righteous lives in this world. Let's stand together. Lord Jesus, search our own hearts. Help us to come to terms with the truth. Keep us from playing games with ourselves, evading and avoiding the truth as we know it. Enable us to be God's men and women from head to toe and and simply refuse to let the flesh have its fling. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.